and welcome to another episode of Crimes and Witch Demeanors. I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. On Crimes and Witch Demeanors, we go further than just the Wikipedia page and dive into the archival record to discover the truth behind your favorite ghostly tales. I hope everyone is doing well and that you enjoyed last week's little diversion into the strictly paranormal. And if you didn't, no worries. Today I'm back to my old hijinks and we are looking at a really fun historic haunt that I so desperately hoped to be true. It's no secret that I love wine. I truly do. Who doesn't? It's one of the reasons why I love Western New York so much and also Southern Ontario. We have so many great wineries here and luckily for me and you and this podcast, many of them are haunted. So today I'll be telling the alleged, and I really do mean alleged, tale of Margin Manor, a haunted winery in the hamlet of Appleton, New York. The village of Appleton sounds quaint, right? Well, wrong. There is nothing quaint about Margin Manor. Tales of murderous Freemasons and a mysterious death curse plague this winery. And spoiler, a dog dies in the end. Just so you know, it's a little tragic. But how much of this story and this curse are true? Well, as usual, that's what we're here to find out. So let's just dive right on in to the purported past of Margin Manor. In order to fully encapsulate the story of Margin Manor, or at least the story of its ghosts, we must begin in 1826 with a man by the name of William Morgan. William Morgan was a bricklayer from Virginia who moved to Batavia, New York in 1824. Once he arrived in the small village, he attempted to join the local Masonic Lodge. Morgan had no membership, but claimed that he had joined the Masons in another country, and his in-depth knowledge of their most secret rituals appeared to confirm this fact. However, despite this, his application to the lodge was rejected. In a fury, Morgan threatened to publish a tell-all book that would expose the Freemasons and their most deeply guarded secrets. William Morgan recruited a local printer, David Miller, to his cause in order to publish his expose. However, before any copies of this pamphlet could be printed, David Miller's printing press and his office mysteriously burned down, and William Morgan was arrested for overdue bills. David Miller paid Morgan's bail, but just as Morgan was released, he was thrown right back in jail for another past-due bill in the neighboring town of Canadegua. Unfortunately, Miller was not able to come to the rescue of Morgan this time. The combined loss of his business and paying the first set of bail had completely depleted what funds he had. However, it seemed that fortune was on Morgan's side, as a mysterious stranger paid his bail and arranged for a carriage to pick him up just outside the jail. The carriage appeared to be headed to Canada, allegedly to prevent Morgan from being arrested again on similar charges. But the carriage made an unexpected stop at Fort Niagara to pick up a few new passengers. It was here at Fort Niagara where a handful of Freemasons grabbed Morgan, bound him with rope, and carried him onto a boat bound for Canada. However, while the Masons made it safely across the Niagara River in Lake Ontario, Morgan did not. The Masons had tied William Morgan to a large rock and tossed him overboard into the seemingly endless depths of the Great Lake. William Morgan drowned just off the shore of modern-day Margin Manor. 
A large natural stone in the area serves as a marker for the site of his death. Eight years later, the parcel of land that served as William Morgan's death site was purchased by Shubel Scudder Merritt. Merritt promptly set to work on building his dream home, constructing a 9,500-square-foot manor made of stones imported from Italy. Opulent gardens and orchards were planted on the surrounding land, and a rock garden was artfully placed around the large stone that served as Morgan's marker. The estate was proudly deemed Appleton Manor, named so for the hamlet in the town of Newfane, located just south of the property. Merritt lived on the property with his wife, Sophia Spencer Wilson, his son Louis, and his two daughters, Phoebe Sophia and Cordelia Marie. They lived in bliss in the manor for quite some time, until March of 1864, when Sophia suddenly passed away. Sophia's death set their fortune on its head, and things only went downhill from there, marking the beginning of the curse of Margem Manor. The very next year, Shubel and his son Louis had returned from a hunting trip. Louis had gone upstairs while Shubel remained in the parlor to clean their guns. While upstairs, Lewis had opened a letter from the University of Rochester stating that his tuition had been raised to $12 a semester. Shocked and appalled by this, Lewis ran downstairs and burst through the French doors of the parlor to tell his father. Unfortunately, Schubel was startled by his son's dramatic entrance and the gun he was cleaning was accidentally set off, shooting and killing Lewis on the spot. It was 3 p.m. on a Thursday. This tragic accident sent Schubel into a spiral of guilt and anxiety. He demanded that the French doors to the parlor be permanently sealed in order to prevent another tragedy and to help block away the memory of that tragic day. Years passed with the burden of his guilt before Schubel also died in the home on March 2nd, 1881. It was also a Thursday at 3 p.m. After Schubel's passing, his daughter Phoebe Sophia and her husband Lucius Adams moved into the family home after buying Cordelia's share of the farm. They lived there in peace, raising their daughter Elizabeth void of tragedy for years, until one day, while Phoebe was in the parlor with her husband, the French doors, which had been sealed for years, blew wide open. With a gasp, Phoebe fell to the floor, dead. It was three in the afternoon on a Thursday. Phoebe's husband and daughter promptly moved out of the home and began to rent the property out. They had rented the manor to a man by the name of John Morley, who, while he had died on a Tuesday, his body wasn't found until 3 p.m. that Thursday. Fed up with the constant tragedy and the apparent curse, they eventually sold the property to Dr. Charles A. Ring. Dr. Charles Ring had been the very first director of the esteemed, and very haunted, Richardson Olmsted Complex, or the Buffalo Insane Asylum. Dr. Ring and his wife, Estelle Morse, had dreamt of escaping the city of Buffalo to begin farming. Dr. Ring and his wife, Estelle, ended up being excellent farmers and were well-known in the region for their outstanding peach crops. However, it seems that the Ring family could not escape the same fate that befell the Merritts. On a Thursday afternoon at 3 o'clock, the servants in the home heard a loud bang coming from upstairs. The servants rushed to the second-floor office of Dr. Ring to find him dead at his desk from no apparent cause. The bang they had heard was the sound of his skull smashing into his solid oak desk. Estelle maintained the peach farm for as long as she could before dying of old age. Margin Manor was then sold to the Sisters of St. Joseph to be used as a summer retreat and a camp for young girls. The Sisters of St. Joseph had a dog named Luke, 
who was doted upon by both the sisters and the children who attended camp there. One day, while Luke was in the parlor, curled up by the fireplace, he abruptly sat up and ran over to the French doors. He barked at the doors three times before going back to his spot by the fireplace, curling up and dying. You guessed it. It was 3 p.m. on a Thursday. The victims of this apparent curse still haunt the grounds today, making their presence known to all those who visit. Was this land cursed by the death of the alleged Freemason William Morgan? Or has this land always been a place of tragedy? You can still visit Margin Manor today, as it operates as a winery and a wedding venue. No one has died there in quite some time, but I advise you to perhaps avoid scheduling your visit at 3 o'clock on a Thursday. Just in case. Oh boy, I I don't even know where to begin with this one. I kind of want you to dump pretty much everything I just told you out of your skull because it's either not true or incredibly convoluted. Either way, just like ice wine, it's cause for upset. If you haven't had ice wine, don't do it. It's led to uh, an international border tragedy in my friend group. Amanda, RIP to you throwing up on the Canadian border and the Border Patrol being very confused. Either way, lesson is, ice wine, stay away from it. It's disgusting. I digress. A lot of the story of Margin Manor I obtained from a book titled Haunted Buffalo, Ghosts in the Queen City by Dwayne Claude and Cassidy O'Connor. It's a nice place to start for ideas, but dear god, the inaccuracies are innumerable. I'm really big on the alliterations today. Anyways, even the misspelling, there's just misspellings in this book. But these errors, at least some of them, aren't isolated to this book alone and actually plague a lot of the retellings on the internet as well. The book started off on the wrongest of feet, citing Shubal Merritt's name as Subel Merritt, which sounds like someone who identifies as both a woman and a cow. But no, it's Shubal Scudder Merritt is the correct name. Merit has been spelled with two T's and one T, which has led to some confusion, which you'll see down the road. But one thing that intrigued me about this particular story is what a great narrative it has, this whole the occupants of the land and that they all somehow died on 3 p.m. on a Thursday, which can be easily debunked. So one would think if one's on Ghost Hunters, because this Manor has been on Ghost Hunters and other ghost shows that, you know, someone would have bothered to check. (sighs) But alas, let's dissect this story and I'll let you know what was actually true and what was just a convoluted mess. So the story of William Morgan and his attempt to swindle the Freemasons is actually true up until his disappearance. No one actually knows what happened after he got into that carriage. He could have died, he could have been murdered, he could have successfully escaped to Canada. It is unknown. But that is actually a much more involved story in its own right, and the local library in Batavia actually has a number of materials related to the story. And I'm sure that there are probably other podcasts that cover it as well. But again, that's not really what we're here for. We're here for the ghosts and the curse. 
So the story states that Shubal Merritt built his mansion as soon as he bought the land, but that actually wasn't true. Martin Manor was actually the third house they had built on the property. The Merritts first built a log cabin, then they built a wooden frame house, and finally, once their business had really taken off and started turning profit, they built the manor in 1854. Sophia Merritt enjoyed the house for a full decade before dying of tuberculosis in 1864. Now, a year after this is when their son Louis tragically died from a gunshot wound in the parlor. Or is it? Well, it turns out that that story is, well, it's just, it's just a story. Louis wasn't shot and killed by his father, but instead, like his mother, he also died of tuberculosis. And as the story says, at 3 p.m. on a Thursday. All right, let's continue on before we start really looking into this 3 p.m. on a Thursday business. As the story goes, Shubal Merritt himself died on March 2nd, 1881, on a Thursday at 3, just like his son. Now, the tale goes on to say that Phoebe inherited the home and then also died after the French doors blew open again at 3 p.m. on a Thursday. Of course, there are more deaths afterwards that again happened at 3 p.m. on a Thursday, but let's look at the Merritt family first. There was definitely some confusion as I was trying to locate the records uh, for this family, because somehow, in the same incredibly small town, there was another Shubal Merritt and another Sophia Spencer Wilson who were not married to each other, and obviously they were not actually the ones I was looking for. This sent me into a spiral. I was so confused. But don't worry, I did come out at the end of it, and I found the right people. As I mentioned, the book spelled Merritt differently with two T's or one T, and then also the daughter Phoebe's name has been spelled a bunch of different ways, which was confusing. Adding to that is that Lewis Merritt, the son, has two graves in two different cemeteries, providing two different death dates and two different middle initials. How, 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 why, how? Anyways, one grave uh, has the inscription of Lewis W. Merritt and claimed he died on the 22nd of May in 1863 at the age of 29, which would have been a Friday and not a Thursday. The other grave for Lewis E. Merritt claimed he died on the 22nd of May 1865 at the age of 31. Now, this is the generally accepted date that's touted everywhere, which would have been a Monday. So, strike one. What about Shubal Merritt? What about good old Shubal or Subel? Maybe he died on a Thursday, since the March 2nd, 1881 date is the most cited date everywhere in this book and on the internet and television shows. It's always March 2nd, 1881, so surely the date that they are saying constantly, you would think someone might have checked what day of the week that was? <sighs> Alas, uh, it was actually a Wednesday. Yikes. So I confirmed it with both his gravesite and an excerpt from the neighborhood news section of the March 7th, 1881 Buffalo Morning Express that states, and I quote, Mr. Shubal Merritt, an old and much esteemed citizen of Newfane, died on the 2nd. Strike two! All right. So what about Phoebe? Maybe Phoebe is going to come out on top. Our least favorite charmed sister, but maybe she's going to, you know, come through here. So her grave states that she died on April 9th, 1921, which unfortunately was a Saturday. But according to the New York State Death Index, she actually passed away on April 7th, which is in fact a Thursday. 
So we finally have a Thursday death in the house, right? So that's cool. Just kidding. Strike three. Um, she was no longer living on the property. Actually, she hadn't been for decades. Um, outliving the other tenants that had bought Margin Manor by over a decade. That's it for the merits. So one of them died on a Thursday, but not in the house. She hadn't lived there for quite some time. So that's that sucks. But the Dr. Ring part of the story, like from the merits onward, tell us how this urban legend began. So the story goes that Dr. Ring moved into the home with his fiancée, Estelle Morse. That is just plain wrong. This was in the book and a couple places online, but that's not true. Dr. Ring moved into the home with his wife, Hannah Danelia Ripley Farwell. How Estelle comes into the picture is really confusing and maybe a little uh, salacious and scandalous. So Hannah's father, Dr. Ring's actual wife, her father, Reverend Alan Plum Ripley, had a second wife, Florella Celeste Morse, who had a half-sister, Elia Estelle Morse. Are you confused yet? Don't worry, it gets more confusing. So after moving into the home, Dr. Ring's wife, Hannah, died in 1907. However, in January of 1908, he named Elia Estelle Morris, his late wife's stepmother's half-sister, the heir of the estate. Whether they were having an affair or something, I don't know. But he mysteriously dropped dead the very next month. He just named this woman as his heir, and then, bam, dead. If that, I, mm. So, what about Dr. Ring? When did he die? According to his grave, he died on the 29th of February, 1908. But according to the Buffalo Courier, he passed away the evening prior, as stated on the 28th of February. The current owner of the house actually states that it was, in fact, the 28th, and is adamant that this is the only death in the home to be on a Thursday afternoon. However, whichever date you go with, whether you go with the 28th or the 29th, it was either a Saturday or a Friday, respectively, and definitely not a Thursday, despite the owner's claims. Which is unbelievably strange, because the owner maintains that none of the merits died on a Thursday afternoon, but claims the whole Ring family did, which, you guessed it, also isn't accurate. Oy vey. So, Estelle Morse moved into the home promptly after Dr. Ring's death, and brought with her her half-sister Florella, who was Hannah, Dr. Ring's wife's stepmother. It's all very confusing, it's all very strange. I'm sure it was a huge scandal at the time that Estelle inherited the property, but she was a shrewd businesswoman, so it's no surprise that she managed to wrestle the property from Dr. Ring. It's a shame that he died only a month after he put her in the will, (laughs) but I digress. So Florella actually died that same year on September 14th, 1908. Again, the current owner claims this was one of the Thursday deaths, but I'm here once again to tell you it was a Monday. So Estelle actually ended up marrying a farmer who was a caretaker and laborer on the farm at Margin Manor, but they ended up leaving the home in 1922. Margin Manor went into foreclosure, being taken up eventually by the Sisters of St. Joseph, who used the home as a summer retreat for themselves, as well as deaf children from St. Mary's School of the Deaf in Buffalo. The book states that they had a dog named Luke who died, which is partially true. There was a dog that died, as all living things tend to do, but his name was actually Duke and not Luke. In this case, I can see why Luke would make more biblical sense, like, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, your dog is dead. 
But Duke, he definitely looked like a Duke. He, I think he was like a St. Bernard. I'll have to find the picture. Being ex-librarian of the AKC, you think I would know my dog breeds. But alas, I, hmm, it's, it's not always. I, it's been a while. But unfortunately, I have no way of verifying which day that he actually had died since, well, the AKC does keep records of some dog deaths, but uh, the sisters of St. Joseph did not. So people died in the home. A lot of people died in the home, but none of them on a Thursday afternoon at three. So how did this rumor begin? It turns out it was none other Then Estelle Morse, who was the one to start spreading these rumors around like the peach jam she probably made. Jeez, Louise. So these rumors started when she did an interview for the New York World published in 1908. This article praised her for being such a great businesswoman and talked about the peach farm that they had at Margin Manor. And I'm sure that she wove in this story to kind of drum up interest into the property and the home and get people interested in her peaches. Yeah, so I could not find this article, but that does not mean it doesn't exist. The summary of the contents of this article do come from an unreliable source, which is the current owner of the manor, but she does literally have it framed in the hallway at the manor, and I have no reason to doubt that that's what it's about. It's right there. Um, I could probably actually go visit. It's only like an hour away. Some of, a lot of the places that I've actually covered are pretty close to me, and maybe one day I'll actually go there and post it on Instagram. Which, if you're not following at Crimes and Witch Demeanors, go and follow the Instagram. I put scans of documents, old photographs, and other fun things on there. So go. There's actually a fun ghostly occurrence that surrounds this framed article. It was the day of Estelle's birthday, and the owner was there, and there was a bartender behind the bar, and they decided to pour a glass of sweet red wine in honor of Estelle. And as the bartender poured it, they exclaimed that here is a sweet red wine for a lady that may have not been so sweet. And just as the bartender uttered these words, the framed article flew from the wall, fell on the floor, and broke the glass. Not the wine glass, but the glass on the frame. Apparently Estelle resented that remark, but just based on her reaction, probably true. So what other ghostly occurrences happen in the home? One of the most active places for ghosts is actually the front stairs. A lot of people have seen individuals in Victorian clothing here. The Ghost Hunters from the Ghost Hunters television show actually heard someone say, who's in my house, without even using their EVP equipment. I think they just heard it in a person. I looked at the footage, or at least some footage, and I didn't hear it, but I guess they allegedly heard it. Again, not very verifiable. But a young man has often been seen on the stairs there by servers and employees at the house. Could that be Lewis? A young man in Victorian dress would definitely match the description of Lewis, who died in 1865 or 1863, depending on which tombstone you go with. Another one of the most active areas in the manor is the covered front porch, which is kind of an entryway. It's another hot spot for paranormal activity, and people say that they see Estelle Morse there, and she greets visitors as they come into the home. So that belies that maybe she is friendly, unlike the time that she threw a fit and literally threw an article at someone. But yeah, it's been reported on many occasions that they see her there, and she greets them into the home. Now, this doesn't happen on the front porch, but it has to do with the front porch. 
people often see an older gentleman upstairs, and he starts complaining about the front porch, the same front porch where Estelle is often seen. Now, this individual is most likely Shubal Merritt, as that front porch was not constructed and was not part of the home when he originally built it, so he's pretty salty that they kind of ruined his architectural plans. And there's more activity that happens here. One winter, a former employee and her family were acting as the winter caretakers for Margin Manor since they just lived up the street from the property. So they would come in, do their rounds, make sure the pipes weren't frozen, and on one such day, they were making their final sweep of the ground floor when all of a sudden, they heard an alarm clock going off upstairs. Confused, and for lack of a better word, probably alarmed, they went upstairs to check out what was going on. They found the alarm clock in the bedroom, but... The creepy thing is, is that the alarm clock, as they were holding it in their hands and it was going off, was not plugged into the wall. Ooky spooky. So I guess a lot of things happen with electronics there. One time there was a wedding and everyone had their digital cameras out. This must have been early 2000s. And as the bride and groom were saying their vows, or were about to say I do, every single digital camera turned off in succession, like in order, and then they all turned back on in reverse order. But all encounters haven't been so friendly. There are some more frightening experiences that have happened, mainly in the basement of the home. Now, it's important to note that the home was part of the Underground Railroad, And in fact, many orchards in the area at the time were. One of my favorite orchards that I grew up going to every single summer, Murphy's Orchard, was a part of the Underground Railroad as well. Now again, not all parts of the Underground Railroad were actually underground, but some of them were. Because there were some underground underground cavities, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but underground areas where escaped slaves would have to hide. So in Murphy's Orchard, there was an underground area underneath one of their barns that they would hide escaped slaves when bounty hunters came by. And it could be dangerous because, you know, you're in the dark for could be days or weeks at a time. You're in there with a number of other people. You're having to defecate and urinate in that spot. You might be hungry. And I'm sure many people actually died. So anyway, the Margin Manor, they had a space in their basement where they would help to hide escaped slaves before they went on to their next destination on the Underground Railroad. Now again, this area of New York has a lot of spots in the Underground Railroad, not only because it's the north, but because of the proximity to Canada. It's very easy to get to Canada from Buffalo and Niagara Falls. You just go over the river. So a lot of people experience things in the basement. Some people are grabbed, some people are pushed, some people are poked. And this may indicate a more aggressive or malevolent presence, or perhaps it's just the imprint of psychic energy of all the trauma that these escaped slaves had experienced manifesting in these ways. And while some people are kind of like assaulted in these areas, other people just experience a feeling of intense sadness. So my hypothesis, which I like, is that the people who are assaulted and pinched and poked and get their hair pulled are just people who are there that just happen to be racist, and the spirits of these escaped slaves are just like, you know what, screw you, I'm gonna pull your disgusting ratty hair with chunky highlights, you racist little Karen. I don't know, that's my idea, I think it's fun. I think they're just getting a little bit of harmless revenge on people who might not be so savory. So modern-day Margin Manor is used for wedding venues, different events, you can stay there as like a bed and breakfast. They have a number of fruit wines that I'm sure Moira Rose would be happy to sell. 
But yeah, I think it's safe to say that you can go there at 3 p.m. on a Thursday, seeing as nobody died at 3 p.m. on a Thursday there. Stop spreading the lies. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm really excited for next week and this coming month because I am going to be doing some queer ghost stories for Pride. Super excited, super jazzed about that. I hope you are too. Next week's episode is going to be a haunting I'm pretty sure I'm going to do it on this, is a haunting in the gayest town in America, Provincetown. So look out for that. Otherwise, again, follow the Instagram at Crimes and Witch Demeanors. If you're listening on Apple, leave us a cute little review. My overcast friends, I love you dearly. Hit that star and make me a star or whatever it does, because it's still a mystery. So until next time, don't leave your home to your late wife's stepmother's half-sister in the will. Drink a nice fruit wine but don't touch ice wine. And as always, stay spooky. Bye.